0: This is the time in our service when we get to preach gospel to you. All week long, you are receiving messages from the world. Some are good, many are not. Some are true, many are not. This is the time each week as a family when we seek to hear good truth from God together from his word. Michael's just read words of scripture My job is to make some of those words plain to you and to the degree to which my words align with the words of Scripture. It's a good morning. Uh, Here's what we're doing. We're preaching for a stretch on the glories of the age to come. It's a neglected doctrine. It's something that we don't think about a ton. The glories of the age to come. We're calling this. Our future is super, super bright. If I could have strung a dozen supers along the title here, I would have done that. Super bright. Last week we started with this verse of scripture. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory to come. And we said, what in the world? If we were to weigh the sufferings of this age, it would be just so dark and so heavy, and it would register huge. You would actually not be able to breathe if you just registered the sufferings of just this room in just the last five years. Imagine all the suffering of all the people in all the centuries, in all the nations of this world. And yet the Spirit tells us that if you added all of that up, It doesn't even compare to the glory that's coming. So we said, could somebody please tell me about this glory that is coming? I need to know better. That's what we're doing together for the next few weeks. Here's today's big thing, that the first foundational glory of the age to come is not an idea, a concept, a reality. It is a person or it is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the brightest joy of the age to come is that we will finally and fully know and be known by the living God forever. All right, let's pray. We'll see that in Scripture. Father, visit us is it our ears and our minds and our hearts, this is such grace that there is gospel to be preached and heard, and I pray that we would not miss it together. This morning, hear my prayer and answer, amen. All right, let me start here, the best part of something. Anybody ever been to a Red Sox game, Red Sox game? How did you get those tickets? Whoa, okay, give me the best part of the Red Sox game experience. What is it? Winning. Whether they won or not, that's the best part. What else could be on that list? Singing Sweet Caroline in the bottom of the seventh. Anything else registered for anyone that you would say, actually, if you ask me, this is the best part of going to the Red Sox. The food, crackajacks, popcorn, the pregame's a lot of fun. Anyone else get there as soon as the gate opens? Okay, if we made a list, you could come up with the best part of that experience. Anybody ever been to Six Flags over New England or Great Adventure or Dallas the Original? What's the best part of going to Six Flags? Go. The rides. Specifically the Superman ride, that's at the top of the list. Anything else? The anticipation. You have the calendar date circled. I cannot wait to go do this. Ah, I walk through the gates. That's the best feeling of the day. Nobody's mentioning the food, right? Because it's like $13.99 for a hamburger. $6 for a 20-ounce Coke. Okay, how about Europe? Anyone ever been to Europe? Best part of the trip. Best part of Europe. We got foodies all over this church. Okay, the food. What else? The, the sights. That was the hot, that's the best thing on the list, the sights. What about Nashville? I have to go to this place this summer. I've never been south of D.C., so what is the best part of Nashville? If I walk down the street and I go, where's Dolly Potten? Anybody know where Dolly Potten is? Will they even know what I'm saying? The food, again. Okay, how about a spa? We won't judge you. Has anyone ever been to a spa? What was the best part of that experience? I wouldn't know, but don't say the food. The massage, it was, I turned everything off and I just relaxed. Okay, do you see what we're doing here? One way to think about a reality and experience is, give me that list and tell me what's number one thing on that list. There is a sense, and that's what we're doing in this series, listing out for you the super brightness of the age to come. And, of course, you would want to open up the series with the top of the list. And there's a lot of glorious things we're going to talk about. But what would be first on everyone's list would be, I hope, well, I mean, it's God himself. It's God himself. That's true, but there would be a major problem if that was the only way that I framed this sermon for you. That's because it is not merely that there is a beautiful list of breathtaking glories of the age to come, and that the first and the best is God himself. It's more than that. It's that there is this one glory that stands apart from all the others. And it not only heads the list, but it sits beneath all of them and it holds them all together. In other words, this glory is not just first, it is foundational. You know Jenga? If the glories of heaven was a bunch of Jenga pieces put together, this is not only the brightest piece, but it is the one that if you remove it, all of the others crumble. Here's how theologians say this. They use these two words to get at this idea essential and accidental. What this is saying is there's one essential glory and joy. That one's got to be there. If you have that in place, then all the others are accidental, tangential, connected to that one. All right, let me give you a couple of illustrations because it's important that you get this. We did Thanksgiving when I was a kid at my grandmother's house every single year. And there was all these glories, all of these delights of going to her house. Uh, Number one, our cousins would be there. And some of these cousins we didn't see all the time. And we knew Thanksgiving Day, we are going to just have such a great time with them. Board games, playing football in Queens on this narrow street with cars on both sides of the street. Uh, Getting to see how they had changed over the course of the year. Cousins was on the list you'll be happy to know that food was on the list. I was little, so all I remember was mashed potatoes and dessert. But I was pumped about both of those. We used to watch King Kong and NFL football. I could give you the list of things that made it such a great day. But one year, I got the worst stomach flu imaginable. You know that creature from Alien? It was inside of my digestive system. I spent the entire day in my grandfather's bed with a a puke bucket. You know what that is? Puke bucket and a little black and white TV to watch the Lions and the Cowboys. I was just so terribly sick. I couldn't play football. My cousins couldn't come near me. I didn't eat any of the food. Do you see what happened there? There was an essential thing that needed to be in place if I was going to enjoy everything else. If you remove that essential, all of the accidental glories were meaningless to me. That's the glory that we're talking about today. Let me give you another illustration that's more personal because this is a very personal sermon. Long Beach, California. Two summers ago, Grace and I had to go out there for our end-of-the-year church planting lead pastor conference, and we decided that that would also be our family summer vacation. So we were going to go, that we were going to put all four of our kids on a flight from Logan to Long Beach to meet us there, and we would spend the time together. Long Beach is awesome. There is a list of very cool things about Long Beach. Aquarium of the Pacific, you can learn how to surf uh, good food, a fantastic pool. Grace and I put together a list, or I'm the list guy, so I put together a list of all the awesome stuff to do in Long Beach. But it wasn't until our kids arrived that we were truly able to go enjoy the city of Long Beach. A, we were terrified because they were on a flight by themselves. Uh, they flew, the flight was delayed, and then, have you been to the Long Beach Airport? So it's a Southern California thing, it's a small airport, and everything is outside, basically, so you stand by the gates, and you watch the plane land, and then people come down the steps to the, to the gate, so we're there at 9.30, but they didn't arrive to maybe 11, 11.30, And we're waiting and watching and waiting and watching. And no one told us, but the New York City flight got in before the Boston flight. So I watched every single person get off the plane. And then the workers. And there was no cruise kids. And then finally, around midnight, their plane landed. And all these other people got off. And here come the four most Boston-looking kids you have ever seen in Southern California. And I just remember, if you asked me what was the height of the whole trip, you know what the height was, the deepest joy? Seeing Matt's face, seeing Brandon's face, seeing Julia's face, seeing little Callie's face, being with them. Boom! You put that in place, now we are able to enjoy all the other glories of Long Beach. Does everyone feel this? This is what we are talking about when we say, That the essential joy, the essential glory of heaven is that you and I will enjoy the immediate intimate presence of the living God uninterrupted forever. It is not only the brightest joy, but it is the joy that centers and holds everything else together. Revelation 21 is filled with this truth. We're going to see it in three places. Let's do some Bible together. Here's the first verse. John's vision starts with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Boom, these words. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Can everyone feel it in here? This is the first behold of the vision, which means, hey, 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 don't miss this. You can't miss this. And the first foundational truth that he presses, the first thing that he saw, is this. God dwelling with men like this. If you're paying attention to the text in your Bible, we love when you do that, you'll see the same word twice. Dwelling place, dwell with them. It's a noun. The age to come is a dwelling place with us and God. It's a verb. Finally, he and we will dwell together. This idea of dwelling threads its way through your whole Bible. To feel the power of this, you've got to track backwards. To get to the import of this, you need to see what's the first dwelling, the first relationship, the first face-to-face community that ever existed. It's actually not within the creation. It's beyond the creation. It is in God himself, we say it like this, dwelling began in eternity before there was heaven and earth, man and woman. God has existed always, infinitely, in community, in Trinity, three persons in relationship with each other. This truth has so many mind-blowing implications, and one is this. Not only is God the most holy being that exists, but He is also the most happy. Not only is God the most holy being that exists, but He is and always has been the most happy. Jonathan Edwards says it like this. He says, God's life is the mutual beholding of infinite beauty. In other words, the Father face-to-face with the Son, the Son face-to-face with the Father, infinitely divine, pure beauty, love, relationship, community, and all the joy that comes with that Trinitarian fellowship, that is who God was before there was you or me. And we know creation to be the overflow of that face-to-face, raucous, joyous intimacy that God was looking to invite creatures into that joy. And that's why when we see the garden, it is a dwelling place not only for Adam, Adam, and his bride Eve, but also for who? For God. Scripture teaches us that the Lord would talk with, walk with, be with them face to face in the garden, in the cool of the day. You and I were made to enjoy the happiness of God with God and with each other forever. That's what we were made for. Terribly sin enters the story and what's the first thing that we see begin to happen? We see what had been face-to-face, intimate, free, joyous fellowship, separated. What do Adam and Eve do? They run and they hide with their leaves in the bushes. And what does the Lord do? He excommunicates them from the garden, removes them from that fellowship. And then the entire rest of your Bible is this impossibly good story of the pursuit of the Trinitarian God, of his broken and fallen creatures, so that he might win them back to himself, so that they may dwell with him again. It's crazy. All right, in the Older Covenant, we see this in shadows. The Lord rescues his people from slavery, brings them into freedom as a foreshadowing of what he would do in the gospel. And in the wilderness outside of Egypt, he tells them, build a tent, call it a tabernacle, and my presence will be over that tabernacle, in that tabernacle, with you. I will dwell with you as my people. So they do exactly what the Lord said. By day there's a cloud, at night there's a pillar of fire. At the center of this tabernacle is the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwells with his people. Now, there's no face-to-face stuff going on here. No one can come near that holy place or they will immediately die because of sin and holiness. But we feel God moving toward his people and he says, it will be dwelling. It will be tabernacle. I want to come live with you and you with me. Then the story gets incredibly wild and like no one saw this coming. But the next step of dwelling is this. how does John tell us that Jesus appeared he says it like this the word became flesh and dwelled among us it's the same word as the older covenant word is tabernacle in other words oh shoot incarnation the second person of the Trinity has stepped literally into our humanity And his disciples and those folks in Jesus' day saw God shielded, but saw God face to face, taking the ultimate step toward us to redeem intimacy and immediacy. Jesus took on flesh and dwelt with us. In that tabernacle of his body, Jesus lives perfectly, dies awfully, but rises victoriously and ascends to the Father and now we are living in this time between the ages before this becomes true forever. And the first thing that John sees, the greatest essential joy of all of it, is that this happens forever. With that background, see these words again with me. Behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man, and he will dwell And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The other thing you might circle if you were studying this text was, God himself, God himself with me as my God. This is the essential joy of heaven that's coming, knowing and being known by God forever. All right, here's the second way that he says it. He says it like this. I saw no temple in the city for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. This sight would have been so weird And so surprising and so revolutionary. Here's the city of God, and there's no temple. This would be like going into Boston on the Green Line, to the Park Street exit, walking up the stairs, and there's no Boston Common. It's gone, just buildings or condos or a patch of dirt. What is Boston without the Boston Common? This would be like going to Vegas, and there's no strip, no electricity. This would be like going to Saugus, and there's no Kowloon. (laughs) They took away the hilltop already, right? I'm nervous. Like, what's next? Kowloon, Cane's, Donuts? You can't have Saugus without Kowloon. And John notes it, and he goes, "I, there was no temple. What's going on here? If you wanted to get close to God in the Older Covenant, Where did you go? How did you do it? You went to Jerusalem, and the best part of the whole city was the temple, because that's where you could worship the living God. Now you couldn't get too close, but you knew me and me and God, that's where we meet each other. That's where I would go. And there's walls and inner rooms and all this stuff that I can't access, but at least I'm close. I could get in the vicinity of God but I couldn't get too close to him. But it was still good enough. You knew if I get there, I get God. And John says, in the age to come, there's no temple because you've got God himself, no intermediary. All right, Bostonian illustration, duck boats. Anybody make it to the parade after the miracle of the Cardinals Patriots Super Bowl this year? Did anybody make it into the city? Matt and Josh. Anybody else? No? All right, how does that whole thing work? You have gone to be in the presence of the the gods of the city, right? And in this case, the one the one capital G, G-O-A-T, goat, right? So you know, I'm going to get to this place, and I'm going to have some kind of be in the vicinity of this whole thing. The boats come down, and on one of those boats is number 12, and that's the highlight of the whole of the whole day. There he is, and I took some pictures. And yes, you were in the vicinity of the goat on that day, but you were behind a fence. You were probably behind 16, 20 different people in the crowd. He didn't know you. He didn't recognize you. He didn't see you. He just This was a one-way affection relationship happening here. Imagine if that night, 5.30 p.m., your doorbell rings, ba-ding-ding, and it's Tom Brady and Giselle. And they're saying, hey, we just wanted to come share a meal with you and sit across the table from you. We brought some food. A bag of avocados. That's what Brady would bring, right? That's all he eats. And that's a completely different night, right? Face to face, across the table, unrushed time, intimacy. This is what John is saying is coming for us. There is no more. I go to a temple, and behind a wall and a second wall, somewhere in there is God. And once a year, the high priest gets to engage with him if he survives. John says, In Christ, God has made it possible for us to have no temple because we will see God like this. And then John says, I saw, not just I didn't see a temple. What's the other thing that he didn't see in here? I didn't see a sun or a moon. The city doesn't even need a sun or a moon. I think what he's saying here is grabbing for language, and he's saying the super brightest thing that we have in our experience, the thing that is most central to our living, breathing, enjoying all of the other joys of this life is the sun. It's the sun. And if you take the sun away, you are not enjoying anything else right? All the work we did for this morning, if you remove the sun, there's no joy here. The sun is essential to all of this. God is like that only a billion times more life-giving and brighter than the sun. That's what John is seeing. He's so bright that his presence makes the presence of the sun not even register. He is so bright that I didn't Sun or moon are irrelevant because this has happened with God. His glory gives the city light. Its lamp is the lamp. Now, I don't think he literally means there will be no stars in heaven or no moons or no planets or no sun. I think what he means is that the brightness of the age to come, the immediacy of God in our lives is so bright, that it will make the brightness of the brightest thing that you know pale in comparison. Here's an illustration. Have you ever been inside of this room at nighttime? So when it's dark in here and we throw on these lights that are in the soffits up here, you can see those lights. This building's so old that it's literally individual light bulbs up there. There's about 60 of them on this side and 60 on this side. When we flip this switch, at night, you know that, that those lights are on. Have you ever been in this room on a perfectly, perfectly sunny day, no clouds, when the sun is right outside of this window and it is beaming into this place and just exploding it with light? Do you know that if you went and turned the soffit on and just stood out here, you wouldn't know if those lights were on or not? So we have this one experience where that's a super bright light in the darkness of this building. But when the sun has risen, it overpowers what used to be super bright. This is something of I'm grasping for language, right? This is something of what the experience is going to be in the age to come infinitely and forever. The brightest thing that we've ever known in this life, the sun that you can't even look at, is going to be like a light bulb in the corner of this soffit compared to the glory of God. We are headed for... An experience where sun or a full moon at midnight, it doesn't even register because of the glory of God. All right, last one. John presses this point a third time, that it is the glory of God that is the essential joy of the age to come, that the essential happiness is God himself. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And then he says this, they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads, and night will be no more. I love everything about this verse. This is why I encourage you to memorize scripture. This thing will just knock you over. Uh, In his book, The Happiness of Heaven, Father Boudreaux writes 16 chapters trying to get you to taste the glories of the age to come. It's a great book to read. You can sidestep some of the Catholic theology around merit, uh, but a whole bunch of this book is just so helpful to open your eyes. The first chapter of the book, the first thing that he says right out of the gate when he kicks it open is, you will see God. That's the heading of chapter one. What's his point? That's the first and foundational glory of heaven. He's totally right to start this way. Theologians call this, they will see his face, the beatific vision. If you ever heard that phrase before, it's three Latin words that get jammed together. Beatus is face, facio is to make, and visio is a sight or a vision. The beatific vision is a happy-making sight or a sight that just thrills your soul when you see it. Oh, man, this is good news. So we experience this in all different ways, right? Some of you foodies, your favorite moment of the day is when your food is brought to you and you see it, and it brings joy to your heart. I've been going to spin class with Grace, and I know that the spin class ends when my bike hits 50 minutes, and when I see the 49, 40, I'd go to 50. Oh, there's joy in my soul. Sometimes when there's a pothole that you keep running over and you see that they finally filled that thing, oh man, you're looking for feral on your podcast list, right? Because you are happy at that sight. All kinds of things you could put on that list. I think if we said to you, what's at the top of the list, you would give me relational answers. It was the sight of someone who I... Loved. Think of your wedding day, right? We got married March 30th, 1996. Um, Lexington, two o'clock wedding. Grace was barely late. It was unbelievable. Awesome. She was like just about right on time. I was pacing in the back. I was so nervous and anxious, like with that energy. Came out with my brother and our like 17 groomsmen, all my friends from my historical life. And then They throw open the doors and you see your bride in her dress for the first time that day. Beatific vision, happy making sight. Oh, shoot, she showed up. I can't believe it. Any parent in here would tell you, I can remember seeing my children for the first time. So, August 7th, 2000, our oldest son was born. 30 hours of labor. And he was just not coming. And they said, "Grace, you're having the baby now." <laughs> and they epiduraled her, did whatever else they needed to do. And we went in, and it was a long, long process, much longer than I thought a C-section would be. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then they hand me—great—they hand me this little baby boy. And Grace's head is here, and I'm here in his face. And how can I the- describe the joy? of a face-to-face meeting of this child that you've been praying for and waiting for for nine months. You can't can't express it. That is a happy-making sight. Have you seen the faces of the dads in this church with little ones? There's only two faces they give you. One is, I haven't slept in like three days, so don't mess with me right now. Or just that stupid, happy, first-time dad grin. You know that? Beatific vision. That's what John says is happening with us. We will see his face. This will not just be a sight of your eyes, it will be a sight of your intellect, of your soul, of your mind, of your full personhood. You're going to see God with all. You're seeing capacity, and your soul will be set on fire with divine love. That is the joy that is coming. And John says, not only is it coming, but it will never be taken away. I love this part of the verse. And his name will be on their foreheads. That is not some creepy reference to a wild tattoo parlor in heaven where you're going to get some kind of crazy script on your head that says Jesus. This is his way of saying you're going to know in that moment with all of your soul, here is joy, and it is mine forever. That's what John is saying right here. That when you see God, it's not going to be like seeing something at a distance that doesn't and never will belong to you. That in the seeing of Christ, who loved you and died for you, and rose for you. You're gonna be so aware that your joy is filled in Him forever. That it will be this burning in your soul, like His name appearing on your forehead. Hey, that joy is my joy. I am His. He is mine. And how could Paul end this with any? Uh, John end this with any words? What? And night will be no more. Again, are we going to sleep in heaven? Will there be sunsets? Probably, I don't know. But what's the point here? Once you've seen God, and once you've had the assurance seared on your soul that that joy will never be taken from you, the sun will never set on that thing right there. There is no darkness that can invade this joy. At the bottom of the joy of heaven, is the experience of the immediacy and the intimacy of God. Let's pray. Father, we get that our application today is
1: everything
0: changes if this is true. But there is a day coming when we will see you face to face and we will be like you and we will be changed forever. And we will have happy dad grin to the nth degree, without end. Jesus, thank you that you made this possible because you stepped into our humanity and its pitch black darkness and ugliness and rebellion and you rescued us from it. Thank you that you have made it known to us through these words that there is a joy coming that will trump all joys. There is a brightness coming that will trump the brightest brightness of this age. We will dwell with you and you with us. We will see you as you are and we will know that we belong to you and it will be all good forever. Thank you for the promises of the age to come. Help us to apprehend them in this age in our living, in our loving, in our believing. Would you give us that grace, I pray.